Ramadi Ignatius, Editor-in-Chief of Harvard Business Review, and welcome to HBR Now. This is the Harvard Business Review show where we take in-depth looks at timely topics like COVID, racial inequality, the U.S. election, and more, to put them into context, particularly for a global business audience. My co-hosts are Joshua Macht, who heads Product and Innovation at HBR, and Octavia Gordima, author and career coach and founder of the 2010 Agency. Our special guest this week in a moment will be Nubar Afayan, co-founder and chairman of Moderna, one of the companies that has achieved the most promising results to date in the race for a COVID-19 vaccine. I'll bring him in in a moment to talk about the hunt for a life-saving vaccine, about the business and scientific and even political challenges that Moderna faces, and what about what we can all expect in terms of a rollout, who's likely to get the vaccine first and when. We invite all of you who are watching to send in questions for Nubar as well, which you can type into the comments. But first, first, let's have a word from our sponsor, our friends at Accenture. Change is all around us. Shaped by technology and human ingenuity, we can make it work for you and your business. And that brings us to that moment in the show where, for practically no reason at all, we share a TikTok that captures the moment we're all living in. So hit it, Engineer Dave. Okay, explain that one to me, Adi. I think it's just, it's a hooray 2020. This is, <laughs> this is our year. Okay, so, great. So anyway, so, so let's, let's, the three of us set up the topic a little bit before we get Nubar in, you know, for our, our feature interview. I'll tell you what's on my mind, and I'm really alarmed by the latest COVID spikes. Um, the U.S. is getting, is, is having, you know, really awful new records for cases, more than 80,000 new cases, two days in a row. Cold weather is going to drive more people inside, which seems to be where this thing spreads the most. And these aren't harmless cases. Hospitalizations are up 40% over the past month. And while the death rate has been stable, it tends to lag behind the increase in cases, meaning the news could well get worse. So we're truly in a race between the dire consequences of further infection and the arrival of a workable vaccine. To an extent, I understand the American president when he complains that for the news media, it's COVID, COVID, COVID all the time. Well, you can't wish this thing away. It's still hard for us all to comprehend that we're living through some sort of dark throwback nightmare, a modern day Dickensian global pandemic that in its lethality is touching nearly every corner of the globe. But there also is hope, and we'll talk about that today, not that COVID will magically disappear, but that we'll come up with a vaccine in record speed, let's hope, that will save millions of lives and get this under control. Octavia, what's on your mind? Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Adi, and we have to cling that to that hope because 8.7 million cases in the United States, over 225,000 deaths. This year has been jarring. And on top of all of that, front of mind for me are that racial disparities persist when it comes to causes and deaths resulting from this pandemic. People of color are getting sick and dying from COVID-19 at rates significantly higher than our share of the population. So everything that we're facing is compounded by those deeper issues of health and economic inequity in our society. So I think you're exactly right. There's so much 
work to do. So I'm clinging on to that hope right now. Octavia, Adi, you're both bringing up things that there's no question on my mind and I'm sure for a lot of people watching. I mean, at the same time, I've been excited about this show for a while to talk to someone uh, like our guest who's on the front lines of, this is just amazing. You know, the speed of, to create something that could potentially bring an end to so much suffering, uh, the science behind it, the business issues behind how this all came together. It is one of the most fascinating stories of our time. I think everything you're talking about, we, we definitely want to get at along with just when it comes to this vaccine, what are we even talking about? What does safe and effective really mean? What, how will the public accept it? Um, what is going to unfold over the next year? Because it feels like both of you, you know, we're definitely in this moment, this dark moment where we're going into this winter. On the other hand, I think we all need something to say, you know, we don't know how long this journey is going to be, but are we getting somewhere? And maybe we learn a little bit more today about how that happens. I, I don't know about you guys, but I am super excited to get started. All right, well, let's do it. So it's my pleasure now to formally introduce our guest, Nubar Afayan. He's a biochemist by training, having, er having earned a PhD at MIT in that field. He's an entrepreneur by vocation. 20 years ago, he created flagship pioneering to attract entrepreneurially minded scientists like himself to tackle seemingly intractable problems. Its portfolio includes Moderna Therapeutics, whose experimental COVID-19 vaccine candidate, made using the company's messenger RNA platform technology, is among the most promising entries in the race to develop a vaccine for mass, mass use. Nubar, as I said before, is Moderna's chairman. Interestingly, uh, Harvard Business School has just written a case about Moderna, co-authored by Karim Lakani and Marco Iancidi. So with that, welcome, Nubar. Welcome. Uh, thanks for the welcome, Adi and colleagues, and thanks for having me. Well, so there's a lot to talk about. So let me plunge right in at the beginning. Um, and let's set the stage a little bit. You know, I saw that Moderna last week announced that it has completed enrollment of 30,000 people in a phase three trial. What does help, you know, help us lay people understand? What does that signify and what comes next? Well, um, getting a vaccine or a therapeutic approved uh, requires a certain set of stage gates and, and regulatory processes. In the case of a vaccine, because of its intended use to a broad population of recipients, the number of people on which you have to do tests, both for safety and for efficacy, tends to be an order of magnitude or two higher than what one might do for, say, a cancer treatment or other such diseases. So 30,000 is the design kind of that, that was specified and agreed upon with the FDA. Completing the enrollment, most of those have now received two doses of participants. This is split 50-50 between placebo and the active arm that receives the vaccine. It's completely blinded. And so what it means is that we, we are near complete, not only with enrollment, but also with the second dose. And what awaits is then the, the resulting effect of the vaccine as compared to the placebo uh, on helping uh, prevent disease, helping mitigate disease, all the different factors that we'll be looking for when we look at efficacy considerations. Uh, what comes next is a pretty intense period where during which cases are accumulated that is, uh, participants in this trial actually who, who get infected with COVID-19, there's a certain number of them that have to be uh, uh, impacted in order for us to then compare 
the placebo group to the active group and see whether there is a statistically significant benefit. Uh, the FDA has set as a guidepost to 50% level as to the effectiveness of the vaccine. That's a minimal point. It could certainly be higher than that. And, and we await the data uh, once enough cases have been recorded. Um, so I mentioned that uh, Moderna and I think Pfizer are are well along the path in developing an RNA-based vaccine. You know, others are developing different approaches. How, how you know, potential consumers like myself, how are we supposed to comprehend and act on these different options as they become available? Well, I mean, it's a good question because we're in uncharted territory. And uh, if you liken this to the flu, most people don't know which flu vaccine they get. In fact, there are several, and they get what they get. And, and that's because this is a public health uh, kind of solution, and it's not that people are offered up a choice. Uh, so, so I think in this case, certainly in the original, the, the initial periods, certainly during emergency use, my expectation would be that there really isn't a consumer choice in the matter. There will be a, a limited supply of vaccine, and we will, and, and the government, which will be in charge of distributing it, both in the U.S. and in other countries, will in turn determine basically how to how to reach uh, the, the various uh, uh, initially most vulnerable population, and then later on, hopefully, everybody. So I would say the way to think about it is based on data, because it's one thing to think about the technology underlying the vaccine. It's nothing to look at what proof points we have. And upon successful completion of a trial that actually does show safety and efficacy. And then, of course, you look at the second layer of information. There may be that certain vaccines are better for older populations. We're certainly focused on that because we recognize this disease is, is very uh, much affecting older populations. So we're doing special sub kind of category assessments. We've already done some in phase one. Uh, so I think over the fullness of time, more and more data will come out and that may inform decision making. But for now, I think it's going to be based on supply and availability. So I know you have to wait for these tests to play out, but what does your gut say in terms of when Moderna will have a product that can be used, let's say, initially for these most vulnerable uh, groups and then more generally and, 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 and other people who are working on a vaccine? What, what's your guess as to when, I don't know, someone like me who's not in a risk high-risk group will be able to, to have a vaccine? Um, Look, I, I think that that's a difficult thing to speculate on with great precision. But what I can tell you is that the public discourse that certainly Moderna, Pfizer, and others have engaged in, as well as Operation Warp Speed, uh, who has been publicly talking about this, points to a late November timeframe before which there will be enough safety data to now begin to adjudicate efficacy data, because safety is a kind of a, a barrier we need to hit, and that's two months. The FDA has said that they want to see two months of data minimally for the kind of the, the 50th percentile patient or subject that joins. So in other words, when half of the people have been given their second dose and we've waited two months, that's a gate. And that will happen towards the end of November. Certainly for Moderna, we've said this publicly, and there may be other, uh, Pfizer may be in a similar timeline. Then it's a question of, when are there enough events recorded to be able to make an adjudication? And we expect that that might be by end of November, 
or or maybe a little sooner, which is a bit of a moot point because we have to wait for safety, or a bit later. So in the kind of November, early December timeframe, that's the best guess we can make. But there are so many unknowns and variables that I think, especially in a very expectant environment, uh, we'd be hard pressed to to try to add to that. So I think the best we could say is, as we end up in late November, December, we should begin to get some clarity. Now, you ask, how does that transmit uh, all the way to kind of an average citizen? And that, I think, is going to be a matter of probably a couple, three months before you get through the emergency use process. Uh, then a BLA, what's called a BLA, which is the formal FDA approval for mass use, has to be adjudicated on by the FDA. And then the, the supply begins to increase. So probably we're looking at spring, late spring by the time you have more than uh, adequate supplies to begin to penetrate a broad population, not just the early most vulnerable and healthcare workers. Yeah. So I, I want to ask you one more question, then I'll bring in Josh and Octavia, who will ask, I'm sure, much harder questions. But, you know, I, I got to ask, I mean, developing vaccines obviously is never easy. It's not usually done so quickly. You know, you're under enormous pressure for basic health safety reasons, but for political reasons, you've got an impatient government who is your purchaser and commercial reasons. Good news on results can drive your stock price up. How do you handle all of these conflicting pressures as you, you do your job? Well, you know, look, I would say add to that the fact that Moderna is a young uh, nine, 10 year old company. It, it's pursuing technology that has no precedent, has no academic precedent, has no industrial precedent. It's brand new. Uh, and obviously we're a company with no product yet. Uh, we have many, many products in development, but none that are commercial. So yet more things to add to the complexity and challenge. And look, the answer is, Having a team, leadership team, led by the CEO, Stefan Bansal, Stephen Hogue, and others, and the leadership team who have a balance of um, the maturity, the experience, the track record, particularly having run Moderna for many, many years. So this is there's a, it's one thing to have theoretical kind of experience. It's another thing to actually have done it within the Moderna setting. This is a company that went from basically no products in the clinic to 20 different clinical programs ongoing, you know, did by far the largest uh, uh, transactions in this industry, whether it's financing or partnerships. And so we've been climbing up a mountain for quite a while. We never expected that when we thought we were getting close to where we were shooting for, there'd be a gigantic mountain that is thrust upon us that we then for public safety reasons, not, not really for financial reasons, have to engage with. But I would say, the leadership team, the platform, importantly, to me, it's really important to understand. Most people think that biology and biotechnology doesn't lend itself to this kind of platform investment, whereas in Moderna's case, it's an ideal example of a common investment that has given rise to many, many products and modularity of design. So all of these things helped us really respond quickly. But otherwise, the pressures are you kind of keep your focus on why you're doing this. In this case, it is to part of the suite of art of solutions we will have as humanity to fight this. And that purpose kind of allows you to prioritize what is noise, what you have control over, and what you can communicate, and, and, and you know, kind of do it day by day. All right, let's bring, uh, let's bring Josh and Octavian and uh, have at the witness. 
Sure, at <laughs> New Bar, nice to see you. Um, I'll take us back for a second. I'm, I'm curious how it is that you're defining efficacy. What's the, uh, you know, the government guideline versus what's realistic for you, what you're shooting for internally, what does that really mean? Well, look, uh, I, can, I can say what, I, what is public information just as a public company. And, and what we have said is that the government guidelines are 50% kind of efficacy. That is that we're actually having a differential effect compared to placebo to the, uh, to the 50th percentile. 100 percentile would be that every single person who's in the active it not, does not impact the infection. And, and, and the comparator set in the placebo does. In this case, 50% is already a pretty significant uh, impact. Um, you can look at what masks do and what other things do under the same basic comparator basis. Uh, and so that, that's one thing. But if you said, okay, well, what might happen? Uh, it's hard to guess, but there are vaccines that are greater than 95% effective. There are some vaccines that are 40, 50% effective. For example, the seasonal flu vaccine can be often in the 40 to 50, 60% range, and yet we, we, we offer them for administration to everybody. Uh, and so I think we're so close to letting the science guide us that we will know. But the notion that you know, a 50% vaccine isn't worth taking, but a 75% vaccine is, I don't think it's consistent with the damage this disease is doing broadly and the impact it's having not only on human health, but human activity and society. I think all the things it's doing should cause us not to be kind of, uh, very picky about just how well we may be able to do. I think I think there's a real trade-off. And, and so we'll know soon enough. I would not rule out that the very first vaccines are a lot better than what people expect, nor do I want to create that expectation. It's just unknowable. We will know. And whatever we have to deal with, we will deploy as part of an overall solution. I mean, the other part, it's sort of amazing to think the Moderna has kind of gone as fast as they have. If they never, the company has never developed a vaccine. There are only a few that really do, and it's hard to do. It almost feels like, you know, winning the World Series or something in the first uh, year, first uh, time in the league, if you pull this off. Coming out of nowhere, make sense of that for people, that it's, it's, uh, it seems almost improbable that you'd be able to do it. I mean, look, uh, it, it is true that, that on the surface, uh, you know, this could be an overnight success 10 years in the making. Uh, and, and, and I think that it is founded upon a set of principles and, 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 and scaffolding, if you will, that we use to build our companies uh, across many, many companies. I should tell you that Moderna is part of an ecosystem of companies that today numbers about 40 and historically it's about 100 different companies that we have been involved within my firm, Flagship Pioneering, in conceiving, creating, and, and, and helping with the management team optimize and develop. And I think that, uh, I'd like to believe that that has helped it be more than just a random startup that, that might hit the lottery. I think that's, that's one of the key, key considerations. But as well, the nature of the science that we're pursuing in the technology is, inter is intrinsically modular, is intrinsically a kind of uh, um, design-based, as opposed to hit or miss, trying to find a small molecule that might have an effect. Uh, so I can I can get into it in more detail, but suffice it to say, those of you who are interested should really look up the underlying technology. This is the closest thing to software. If you liken the human body to the hardware equivalent of a computer, 
software that allows you to run a program that is inject into a patient a piece of code, nothing more than code, the same exact code, different letter arrangement would make any protein you want. In this case, we told it to make the spike protein. And the rest, the human body takes care of. How? Because if you can make cells in the body make the spike protein that the virus uses to do a lot of its damage, and which is immunogenic, we know that, then the body's immune system will go after the spike protein without having been exposed to the virus, and you have an immune response. So there are some kind of uh, things that advantage our ability to go quickly and build on what we have learned for the last decade. I should say that while messenger RNA has not been the basis of any approved vaccine, it has been in human trials for 10 different vaccines before COVID-19 came along. And we definitely built upon that background as well as the NIH, I should also say, who had been researching uh, these, these class of, 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 of viruses, these coronaviruses, and with us had been developing a MERS vaccine, which was getting close to getting into human trials. And it's the same team and the same knowledge that we repurposed for this. So we were lucky in many ways that all these precedent conditions were there. You have to be good to get lucky, I guess. And I think we were in a pretty good position to be able to get. Now, again, luck, luck for us is even being able to go this far. To be honest with you, I mean, I, we keep reminding each other that what we've done so far is highly unlikely, and anything could stop us from getting to the next step. But even getting this far, I think, was built on a lot of prior work. Yeah, definitely. So I just want to remind everyone watching that we'll be answering some of your questions. So please do keep posting them in the comments. And Nubar, thank you um, for everything you've shared. As you know, ethnic minority communities have been disproportionately affected by COVID-19. And as you just outlined, there are currently 30,000 participants enrolled in your phase three study. Can you tell us what steps were taken during enrollment to ensure adequate representation of minority groups? Sure, happy to Octavia. And look, this was an important issue for us, made even more important, given that this was our first, very first large trial or even phase three trial. We'd never been in a phase three trial as an organization before. And we initially kind of went about doing it the way trials are generally run in the biopharmaceutical industry. And what we found early in our enrollment in phase three was actually not only was there not a representative uh, a population that, that, is, that is representative of the U.S. population, but that there was a particular kind of uh, uh, lack of enrollment, particularly from the black population, that we felt alarmed by and then went and asked, what, what happens in other trials? And we found that in general, 5 to 7% of trial enrollments often will be representative of that minority, and in general, there's a problem there. So we had a choice to make. We could either say, you know what? That's not our problem, let's move on and let's get this trial done. Or we could do a rather painful decision that the management team put forward uh, uh, with its own initiative and then with the board to say, should we actually slow down enrollment in order to increase the representation of minorities? And, and should we further tell our shareholders that we're doing that at the expense of what might seem to them as delays, but what seemed to us as the responsible thing to do? And I'm pleased to say that several weeks ago, we, we did do that. We slowed down enrollment from the mainly white population that had been volunteering for these trials. Of course, these trials were being done in many, many different locations. 
where the virus was in a hot zone because we wanted to be able to maximize the chance of, of, of having uh, uh, affected people in the trial. Otherwise, we couldn't read as to the effect of the vaccine and the placebo. And I'm glad to say that by the time we, we concluded the trial, the numbers of broadly minorities and diversity represented were over 35%, I believe 37%. There was over 10% represented from the, from the black population. That was a, a doubling almost of where we were in the beginning. And the Hispanic population ended up being a quite a large population as well. So we took steps we could take responsibly. And, and I know that others are doing likewise. Some of the large pharma companies, for example, Pfizer has increased the size of its trial to achieve a similar goal. Uh, so I think, I think we're all cognizant of this and we want to make this as representative as possible. And I think we have a lot of work to do as a country and the healthcare system to develop the, the enrollment uh, procedures that will make these trials as representative as possible. Yes. So let's talk a bit about the distribution process of a vaccine. Who gets it first and why? And who makes those tough decisions? Well, look, this is a bit unprecedented, but there have been prior pandemics and prior situations, not as large as this, that, that at least guide the way. This is something that in the current situation will be conducted through the Operation Work Speed, this OWS entity that's been created, which is largely using the military's logistics capabilities to ensure distribution to a network of the, the providers and, 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 and further distributors, uh, and all of this has been laid out. The decision as to who gets it will be largely a decision that's made by the HHS, CDC. The government will, will, will put forward their uh, a list of priorities and the order in which they expect under emergency use that the vaccine will be distributed. And our responsibility will be manufacturing, filling vials and handing over to OWS, our supply. After that, and I'll say parenthetically, thankfully, we're not in that loop because I wouldn't, we wouldn't know how to adjudicate who's getting it. And I'm happy that the government is playing its proper role as it is in other countries. So, um, Nubar, I'm, I'm also wondering if uh, you can speak to the difference between emergency use that we've talked about, which is what uh, most of the companies seem to be shoot going for, versus um, what the FDA might be a signaling around expanded use and what that might mean and why that, what, what is that discussion all, really all about? There is an ongoing discussion, uh, which I think is still kind of early in its, in its uh, progress, as to whether there's alternatives to emergency use that could be used. And this is a kind of, those of your aficionados can follow this because there's been a lot posted on Twitter and other places about these things uh, by experts and, and also lots of non-experts, but to talk about what an emergency use authorization may do to the treatment of placebo uh, subjects, because once you have a vaccine available, is it ethically appropriate to keep the placebo group not knowing whether it received vaccine or not. And if you were actually to break that uh, placebo, uh, uh, then what effect will it have on the ultimate assessment of the trial when it comes time to a final uh, biological license application? So these are technicalities that are being discussed. They, they tread on ethical issues. 
And the FDA certainly has been soliciting input from different folks about what else could be done, how else everybody understands that telling this country with 1,000 dead every day that it should wait another few weeks so that we can do kind of keep placebo in its place and not issue emergency use authorization if a vaccine or more than one are efficacious and safe, that's a pretty difficult thing to accept. On the other hand, we should do everything we can to make sure that such emergency use does not corrupt or delay or affect the ultimate availability of the vaccine to everybody. And it's there that people are looking for potential alternative routes. You know, good news for us is that we will do what the regulators advise us to do. Our goal is to be ready to do what they allow us to do. Sure. Um, so let me, uh, we're getting a lot of questions from our viewers and let me turn to the first one. Um, this is from Mohammed in Pittsburgh. <clears throat> and it's, you know, how does Moderna think about vaccine hesitancy and what can you do to address it? And, you know, the, the viewer says that he's not just talking about the anti-vaxxers, but talking about reasonable people who have concerns about topics ranging, ranging from this being novel technology to accelerated development timelines that maybe they're suspicious about. So how, what role can, can Moderna and the rest of us play in, in, uh, in ad addressing this hesitancy? Um, so Adi, it's a, it's a very appropriate question because it, it reveals the degree to which uh, product development innovation in this type of, in this type of endeavor uh, does not allow you as a technologist or a scientist to hide behind kind of saying, well, I'm just making the product and the market will determine it because ultimately the market needs information from you and you can't stop your involvement in that information flow by just providing information on the product. One way of saying we all have the responsibility to be transparent with how we do these trials, provide as much data as possible about what they mean, uh, make sure that people at least know that there's no data that's missing or that there's this other thing about shortcuts being taken. I think people have every right to question whether a shortcut's taken, but not the right to believe they're taken just because we're going fast. I think there are there are ways to go fast and this is evident without taking shortcuts. And so I think people have to kind of look at the evidence, look at what people are reporting. And then I think ultimately it's going to depend on the data because the data will indicate what level of protection we can There'll be some adoption. The concept of early adopters come into your audience. Uh, in this case, it's not a consumer choice issue, but it'll be emergency availability. But guess what? People who don't want to take it will effectively be doing what non-early adopters do in other in other technologies. Some people who will consider this a wise will take it. They themselves will become part of the data. And and the hope is that. Uh, based on the level of threat, based on the level of explanation, and leaders leading by example and, and explaining to people, not just shooting themselves up with vaccines, but explaining to people what the risk and reward calculus is on this. I think the FDA uh, uh, and the and, 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 and as well as another NIH, there's just a lot of different voices that will be heard. And, and, I, and I, you know, if people often ask me, you know, what, what are the sequence of steps that will take contract uh, vaccine hesitancy? And, and, and I can't tell you that because what's happening, unfortunately, in my mind, is also inseparable from the politics that's been happening in the background. I wish this, this, this pandemic hit us in a non-election year. I think it would have been interesting. 
uh, if you were media hit, because we wouldn't be subjected quite to the level of rhetoric on both sides, by the way, who have used the, the, the speculation, the uncertainty, therefore the concern to people's health, uh, as an argument, which now leaves behind the after effect of people having hesitancy. Um, I think people are hesitant about a lot of things in this country. Uh, inequality is, is a very important one. Uh, economic, uh, uh, everything has caused people to really feel exposed as they are with the, the, the solutions that are being brought forward. So we're in a period of hesitancy, and I think that the only thing that can guide us is collective thought, change in ideas, transparency, uh, data, and then people will self sort into when they feel the risk is worth taking. So uh, here's another one that I like from Alec uh, from Chantanegra Beach, Florida, uh, who asks, is Moderna working with other pharmaceutical companies or is this a race to the top? And I like this question because I do think there is so much, we hear a lot about partnering in, in very different ways in the pharmaceutical industry, sharing proprietary information, ingredients, different ways. I mean, really extraordinary uh, a collaboration. So I'm curious to hear you answer this question also to think about, um, is the industry really changing in a significant way or is this just a moment in time? Um, I think the people who are claiming the industry is changing fundamentally, however much I'd like to believe that, having been, you know, innovating in this space for the last 33 years. Uh, I, I think it's it's a it's a little bit uh, overstated. Uh, indeed, people have found dance partners because they were lacking either manufacturing capacity, so you know, strange bedfellows were made out of needing to collaborate to manufacture together, or distribution, or a lot of large companies basically gobbled up small company. Uh, uh, innovations in order to develop themselves. So they didn't have anything in their own arsenal to throw at this. So there have been partnerships, but I don't think there, if you simply accelerate time, there are as many as would have happened in a longer period of time because we would have all thought we had that long to develop a vaccine otherwise. I don't observe there to be highly unnatural things happening. I will say that the NIH has done a very good job of where appropriate insisting on harmonization across trials using similar assays or the same assays, the same way of actually adjudicating things so that the trials can be compared. And, and most of the participants in, who are developing vaccines have participated in that. As for Moderna, you know, we have ended up having both the opportunity and the necessity to go it alone in the sense that we have not partnered with a larger pharmaceutical company, not out of a, 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 an intent not to do so, but the opportunity didn't present itself. We were, I think, too far along in our own efforts by the time people started wanting to have their own vaccine developed. But I'll tell you, and this may sound surprising, ironically, uh, the, there are several messenger RNA vaccines that are being developed. Uh, Pfizer's is one. Uh, there's another one being developed uh, by another group in Germany called CureVac, as well as, as, as Sanofi. Each of those are effectively... Uh, similar technologies to what Moderna pioneered and spent the last 10 years developing, none of those have been in vaccine trials ever before. So I would, I would think that the 10 trials of vaccines that Moderna has already engaged in with the messenger RNA technology absolutely helped those who jumped onto this 
with a COVID vaccine. And that's another way. Sometimes people forget that that collaboration within our system uh, happens by publications and by patents who teach others how it is you're doing what you're doing. Now, in the pandemic period, we are probably our most collaborative step in Moderna has been that we declared two weeks ago that we will not seek to enforce patents that we have across so many aspects of a COVID messenger RNA vaccine because of the situation we're in. So we've said publicly that we are not seeking to enforce that. And so others will be able to use the technologies that we've, we've published on for many years to their vaccine development. And that's another form of indirect collaboration. Oh, interesting. So I'm sorry to say we are out of time. I want to thank Nubar Afayan for being our guest at this critical moment in his company's uh, effort. So thank you very much, Nubar, for being our guest today. Thank, thank you. Um, and I want to thank our sponsor, Accenture. I want to thank all of our viewers, including the many who posed questions. I'm sorry we couldn't get to more of them today. Please join us next week. That is Election Day in the U.S. of A. We will be talking about the vote and what's at stake. So thanks for watching HBR Now. Don't come running in and tell me to turn off the computer. We know we're back. <laughs> well, we're back. We, can ask, we definitely could ask Nubar a zillion more questions. Well, so Nubar, let's get back to this. I mean, the potential for going from, as you said, no products, pretty much no revenue, no employees, to, I, I don't know the numbers, billions, tens of billions in revenue, you know, overnight practically, um, how do you how do you ramp up for this possibility? Carefully, I'm just kidding. Uh, you know, look, I, it's it's hard to it's hard to describe what we are uh, trying to to kind of um, learn how to do. Um, look, I the team I want to describe the team that we have with Stefan Bansell and David Moline most recently was the CFO of Amgen, who's now joined us as CFO of Moderna. The head of manufacturing, CMC at Novartis, is the head of manufacturing at, uh, at Moderna. So the, the way we've gone about doing this is that we've brought on board people with 20, 30 years of experience in their corresponding roles, uh, some early on, some very recently, in order to meet the challenge of scaling up. Um, unlike a traditional kind of product where we'd have to actually do the detailing and you know take television ads and, and create both. This is one where because the intermediary is government, uh, we think it's a little bit easier to do this. Um, and look, we have we have obviously agreed uh, on, upon some supply uh, contracts that we need to fulfill with the US government, with, with increasingly with some foreign governments as well. And, and that will occupy or let's say preoccupy us for the next six to nine months. Uh, Going into the second half of next year, I think there'll be more supply available, and then it might become more of a kind of a competitive, also private sector kind of oriented uh, activity as opposed to only to government. And and so we'll we'll see. We're hoping. We, one of the things, by the way, I should have uh, responded, Josh, to your question, which I which I 
uh, omitted to do so, is this notion of a race. I mean, we from day one, if you look at everything we've said, uh, we from day one have said we need to think of what we're doing as basically being within our own swim lane. We are basically racing against the virus. We are not racing against other people. And however kind of nice business talk that might seem to people, we really, really are not. And the reason is because somebody who finishes earlier than later by a bit isn't going to have any more sales. This is not a market-based demand equation. This is basically the government having pre-ordered and having the ability to order even more from all of us. So I think that getting it wrong is so much more hurtful than getting it right a little bit sooner. That for all the talk about race, 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 look, I think this is a media-related thing. This is a sensationalist thing. It is not. We are moving as fast as we can reasonably go, but no faster. And we are within our, so that's why, you just think about it. We announced, as I mentioned earlier, we're slowing down our trials in order to add diversity to it. If we were reaching the finish line, nobody, nobody made us do it. We have made further announcements along the way that have clearly caused us to go slower than we could have. And even now, we're not, we're not trying to hit a particular date because we just want to make sure that the data is credible. So those are the things that, that, that we've been doing. But as to revenue growth, et cetera, you know, we're going to have to, I'm sure it will have been, it can have been done better by others. Adi would be my answer to your question. I'm sure we will not do it well. And the good news is if we have societal impact and our shareholders are rewarded, they'll never know how much more they would have been rewarded if we were even more effective at it because that control experiment, unlike our placebo, will not be run. So, Nuba, um, one of the audience questions we'd received was from Christian in Las Vegas, who's an eighth grader. And he had asked, if it takes so long to create one vaccine, how will you account for mutation that would require a new one? Basically, are you ready to do it's this all over again? It's a very good question. And it has actually a couple of different answers to it. One is that uh, for Christian to know that a mutation in one part of a virus is not the same as a mutation in another. That is that there could be mutations that, that do not uh, escape the immune system's visibility because it will be somewhere other than the spike protein. And then there's mutations that could be in the spike protein. So first think that the entire virus can be mutating as long as the spike protein or the parts of the spike protein that we're using to cause an immune response, it will not affect us. That's point one. Point two, there's reasons to believe that the spike protein's ability to mutate is a bit tamed by just how important it is to the virus doing what it's doing. Because when you think about mutations, mutations that help you, if you're a virus, become more infective or become more able to reproduce more, et cetera, those are the ones that survive selection and evolution. The ones that hurt you in your ability to get self are basically lost through evolution. So you're looking for things. So a lot of mutations will not give the virus an advantage. And therefore, the spike protein has been actually relatively uh, uh, not the place where people have seen a lot of mutations. And then finally, yes, our platform, quite unlike any other platform, it's an integral part of RNA, we could develop from scratch another vaccine 
at least as fast as we've done this one and probably much faster because we wouldn't have to do the manufacturing setup and the scale up and the qualification runs because we've done all those. So us changing the sequence and then showing it's safe and trying it on a few hundred people is probably a few months of work at most compared to the years and years it would take with protein vaccines or attenuated killed virus vaccines or DNA vaccines. I mean, these are much, much slower technologies. So before we let Nubar go, I kind of want to play the Armenian card. Um, Nubar, you are, uh, you know, an Armenian-American. I'm half Armenian. I love a quote that you said, Armenians have one thing in common, we're super survivors. So, you know, I know that, that you're, uh, you know, the hottest hotspot in the world today might be Nagorno-Karabakh. And, you know, I won't go into all the details of what that is and who's fighting whom, but, you know, I, I, I know you, you wrote a piece, um, you contributed to the New York Times recently on the topic and you follow it closely. What's, you know, do you have a sense of the way out of that really brutal crisis? Well, thanks, thanks, Ali, for mentioning it. It is, it is the case that going into 2020, I never thought that we'd be working on a, a pandemic that's afflicting people and killing lots of people, and that's bad enough, including, including in my case, close to my family. But, but to think that uh, in in this 2020 timeframe, um, you know, governments could decide in that region to wage war to take advantage of the world's inattention and distraction to COVID in the middle of the pandemic, in the middle of the pandemic afflicting the population of the places that have been that have been subjected to war is unimaginable. And yes, and Armenians happen to be in an unfortunate part of geography. Uh, you know, we were there a long, long time ago, so we didn't choose the, the, the neighbors, but it has been a hostile environment. And I, you know, I am well beyond my my capabilities to imagine a solution that is that can be brought about if people don't have the tolerance uh, that is needed to coexist. Um, it is the case, Adi, as you know, uh, since you're part of that broad community, that, that there are Armenians all around the world. There's some 10 million of them. Only 3 million live in Armenia and, and Artsakh, the, 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 the enclave that is the, that is the subject of this current war. Uh, and, you know, we've, we've found a way to survive historical episodes, including a genocide some hundred years ago, and to be living in a, in a modern time, working on these kinds of problems, and seeing compatriots and people that I know quite well uh, being sent off to fight and die with inanimate objects, drones, missiles, airplanes, kind of outmatched 100 to 1, is, is heartbreaking. And, and you know, maybe it'll increase my resolve to, to do good wherever I can do good, but it really has been a, an incredibly painful uh, uh, situation. So, um, switching back to Moderna for a second, because you did mention, you know, what you thought. You didn't think this would be in 2020. I, I'm curious, because with any young company, nothing kind of happens the way uh, founders necessarily think it will unfold. What what was 2020? What was what was the game plan for Moderna? What did what did you think would be happening? Yeah, it's a good question. In fact, anybody who really wants to to see it live, uh, you may know that in the healthcare field. There's an annual conference that JP Morgan puts on in January. It's been a mainstay. I've been to it for some 30 sequential years, presented many times, and I used to run public companies. And, and uh, at that conference every year, including this year, Moderna has presented 
its outlook and its plans for the year, which is online and, and it's worth uh, watching. We had some 15 clinical programs, the most advanced one we expected to get through phase two trials, which is in another vaccine for cytomegalovirus, a huge unmet need medically that, that, that uh, uh, there is no vaccine for today and that we have a very uh, positive kind of early results on. And so that program coupled with a couple of other things in the cardiovascular space, our partnership with AstraZeneca, where we're testing VEGF mRNA for, for, for VEGF in, in, in both my conditions. So we have several programs that were advancing, would advance in 2020 through 2021 for us to be poised to have our own products kind of coming out of clinical trials by 2022, beginning to start the commercial uh, transition in 2022-2023. That got moved up by three years, two and a half, three years, and we went from having messenger RNA in 1,000, 2,000 people to now well over 30,000 people. That's expanded our exposure base. So a lot of things happened that, that were building on, but certainly challenging to the, to the natural course. And look, I could not be more proud. I cannot say this enough from the team the leadership, in particular, the CEO, Stefan Bansal, who was doing a heroic job leading this company for the last nine years, an HBS grad, by the way, uh, and now is doing whatever a heroic job would have been to a non-heroic job, he's been doing to a heroic job in the middle of this pandemic, as have his colleagues uh, that I've mentioned earlier. And, and, you know, that's the best thing you can do. When people say, you know, people are the most important thing in these journeys, um, in, these in this kind of storm, people have yet a different level of importance. Yeah, amazing. All right, well, uh, we have gotten a lot of your, taken a lot of your time, Nubar, and we really appreciate it. This is what an amazing, you know, Fantastic. journey you're on, and thank you for giving us your time. Really great discussion. Thanks, everybody, for a great show. Thank you all. Thank you very much.